You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. On today's show, we're going to talk about Nicholas Castellano pounding the north side, you Darvish throwing 10 different pitches, Omar Narvaez is breaking catcher records that even he didn't know about. What if Hanser Alberto wins a batting title? We're talking about batting average and the Orioles in September. It's a big show. Um, someone asked us about John Birdie. We are here for the big names. And finally, Billy Hamilton is doing the thing. But before we get into any of that, uh, I do need to pass along a story from the Yankee game I attended last night. I already told Matt about this, but it was just the weirdest thing I've ever seen in a baseball stadium. Uh, and I feel like you all need to hear about it. I was at the Yankee game last night against the Rangers, uh, not working just as a fan, which you should definitely try out sometime. Beautiful night for a game. The Yankees won. James Paxton was outstanding. And I was in line at the concession stand waiting for some ketchup. And there was a man in front of me who opened up a little coffee creamer. I peeled back the top and smelled it, which I've never ordered coffee at a ballpark, especially not in, uh, you know, the summer. Uh, but okay, you know, if you want to do your teach, due diligence, teach their own. make sure that it's not, you know, spoiled milk. I totally get that. Okay, so he smells it, seems to pass muster. And he goes up to the ketchup dispensary and squeezes ketchup directly into the creamer, at which point I am stunned. <laughs> and I think to myself, well, I, I have to know what this is. I have to know if I'm missing out on the next big condiment thing. So I ask him, like, I'm sorry, I have to know, like, what are you doing? And he replies in a thick, like, Russian, Polish, Eastern European accent, I don't know. <laughs> and he walks away. And it basically broke my brain for the rest of the night because what even? <laughs> um, you know, as I said, each their own, you know? <laughs> I mean, I guess. Um, anyway, if anyone has a good explanation for what in the hell I witnessed... You know how to find me. I thought maybe it was like a, a some sort of mayo hack, but apparently not, because he even he didn't know. He had what he was no doing. idea. He had no idea what he was doing. Um, Nicholas Castellanos has been phenomenal since being traded from Detroit to the Cubs. Um, since being traded, so since August first, I looked at everybody who had at least 100 plate appearances. If you look at weighted on base, he's been the 11th best hitter in baseball. If you look at expected weighted on base, tied for the eighth best hitter in baseball. Whether you use advanced stats or traditional ones. He's been crushing baseballs. Uh, no argument about that. Now, the question I have, uh, and as I've learned on Twitter, is very different from the opinion of many people, is why? Why is that happening? And the simplistic answer that people seem to have is he left Comerica National Park, which is enormous, and he went to Wrigley, and all the balls that didn't go out of the park in Detroit are now leaving the yard in Chicago. That's easy and simple. Uh, and I also think it's Yes. <laughs> um, I'll get into the numbers, right? But I think my answer is a very non-analytical answer, which is that the Tigers are the worst team in baseball, and now you're in a pennant race for the Cubs at Wrigley. That's super cool. You get a little more excited, and you start pounding baseballs. I don't think that's unreasonable. Also, I mean, Nicholas Castellanos has a history of being a pretty good hitter. Yes. Like, good hitters— right go bananas for a month it's well it's not it's not unheard of you know like it, this 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 happens i'm glad you said that i'm going to skip ahead to that part uh craig edwards at fangress wrote about the streakiness of nick castellanos uh this morning basically and what he came up with is if you look at his cubs streak 
he has a 173 weighted runs created plus. And he looked at this in terms of like rolling 30 game segments. He did that at three different points last season, right? If you look at his uh, isolated power, which is not a stat we use that much, he's uh, he's over 300. He's done that once a year for the last three years. And as Craig wrote, his 173 weighted runs created plus this last this past month is the best month of his career, dot, dot, dot. Although not significantly different from four other really good months. As you said, he's a good hitter who wasn't really having a very good season, and um, he's hitting like the best version of himself. It's not going to last, but it's happened before, and it's happening now at the like perfect possible time. Good for him. Exactly. Really, and mostly good for the Cubs. because Mostly good for the Cubs. And we see this happen, you know, not infrequently, too, where a guy, you know, you, you hinted at this before, gets traded during the season, maybe gets a jolt from being going into a pennant race, Um and goes bananas. We've seen it. This happens like every year with the Tigers. Like it happened with yeah. JD Martinez. He got traded. He was already good. He got traded midseason. Cespedes. The D backs. He went bananas. Cespedes yeah. got traded from the Tigers to the Mets. Went bananas. Like this is just a thing that happens when the Tigers trade guys in the middle of the season. I'll buy. I'll also buy the placebo effect. Someone said, well, it's because of lineup protection. He's got a better lineup around him with the Cubs. And I'm like, it's not that. It's never lineup protection. However, he might think it's line of protection. And if he does think that, then maybe that does actually matter. Uh, we do have numbers on this. Some of the stuff you might know, but there's some cool stack cast data we can drop into this. It is obviously true that he is hitting better with the Cubs. His expected weight on a base with Detroit was 335. With the Cubs, it is 418. That's a huge jump. Um, as the narrative would suggest, he's hitting way better at home. 302 at home with Detroit, 462 weighted on base uh, with the Cubs. But he's also hitting way better on the road. That's because it's not about the park. It's just about he's hitting way better. Uh, the best way, I think, to describe that is looking at his hard hit rate. With Detroit, it was just under 39%. With the Cubs, it is 50%. Powerful baseball man smashes baseballs. Um, what I thought was cool, though, is since we have 3D tracking on all of these batted balls, what I did was I went and I looked... And I tried to find if there's any evidence uh, to the narrative that Comerica had actually eaten a ton of his home runs. And the answer is sort of, but not really that much. Um, I looked at all of his non-home run batted balls as a Tiger at home this year before the trade. And I wanted to find how many of those would have gone out in Wrigley Field. And to be clear, we're just like moving the uh, the tracking. We're not accounting for, oh, it was a windy day in Wrigley or it was raining in Detroit. It's just literally, where did the ball go? would that have gone over the wall at the same part of the park in Chicago? The answer is, I think people want it to be 10 or 12, and I know why, actually, because one broadcast did an overlay, but they did all of his batted balls as though he never played on the road. You can't do that. The answer Oops. is three. He had a ground rule double on July 21st. He had a double on April 7th, and he had a fly out to deep center on April 21st. Those three balls in Detroit likely would have gone out of Wrigley Field. So it's not nothing. Uh, but it's not a huge difference. It doesn't explain what we're seeing. Conversely, how many of his home runs in Wrigley would not have gone out in Comerica? The answer is zero. However, he did have one Wrigley non-home run that would have gone out in Comerica. On August 7th, he doubled the right field. Stephen Piscotty got all caught up in the Ivy. was not a home run. That ball probably does go out in Detroit because it was to right field, not to dead center. The answer to all of this is it's not the ballpark. It's a streaky, good hitter having a perfectly timed, very good month. And he's an interesting test case, too, as we head into free agency. Oh, because man. I don't know what to make of him. <laughs> he's going to be a free agent, which is really going to be fascinating because his defense, which has kind of been the big knock on him, is still pretty mediocre. Remember, he came as a third baseman and was a disaster, and they moved him to the outfield, and he's been anywhere from 
bad to really bad over the course of his career. If we go by outs above average, in 2017, he was negative two, which is just slightly below average. Last year, he was negative 24, which is, you know, wait, awful. Wait, in 2017, that wasn't even the full season, right? Wasn't that the year he got moved from third? Oh, that's true. So, so yeah. you, got, you made so, – yeah, right. exactly. Partial season. Last year, he was minus 24. This year, he's – Minus six, which is still well, it's not awful, but below average. He's a he is a he's a below average defender, and he was granted with the Tigers. It was kind of an odd spot because he was on a team with Miguel Cabrera. We couldn't really DH as much as maybe he's he probably should have. Then again, he's now on a National League team, right. so he's going to be a free agent. He got traded, so he can't get a qualifying offer, which is good for him and huge for him. He's for, exactly the kind of guy who would get killed by the qualifying. That said, I mean, there are not a ton of outfielders out there, but then again, like Marcelo Marcelo Zuna's out there. You know, Ozuna is going to be in more demand than Nicholas Castellanos, I think. Um, so the if, market... If J.D. Martinez opts out, that's a similar guy who's a better hitter. I don't I don't think he'll... But he's also a little older, too, but I'd still, you he's know... He's a better hitter. He's, oh, no question. Um, great to, you know, the Cubs... Um, maybe he ends up staying with the Cubs. He's playing well. Zobris is coming off the books. Like, maybe they decide that they want to, you know, invest I, in keeping Castellanos around. I could around. see it, because... Albert Armora seems to be kind of at the end of his tenure there. You just can't hit. Like, yeah. So you can play Hayward in center field. Uh, which can, is what they're doing. Which is what they're doing. Uh, you could play Schwarber in, in left. You know, which, Ian Happ. I mean, there's a lot of moving pieces with this Cubs. I don't, this is certainly not like the end of their window or anything like that, but it does feel like things are changing. Like it might be the end of Joe Madden, right? Yeah. Like Cole Hamels is going to be a free agent. It, it, things are going to be different there, I think. There's all sorts of rumors that they're going to trade Chris Bryant, which I don't believe, no. but it's just kind of wild. Not like, trade Chris Bryant. <laughs> it's, that seems silly to me, but um, it is kind of, Interesting how they've kind of transitioned into this, like, not old team, but they're definitely, like, you know, better. Like, when they won the World Series, like, Bryant was in 16, Bryant was still really young, Baez was still really young, but now these guys have been around a while, and they don't really have, like, that many, like, a new wave of guys. So it's just kind of like a bunch of players, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of vets, but it's still a good team. You know who will be a Cub for a while to come? Is you Darvish? Although he can opt out this offseason. Oh, can he? He's not. He's not going. <laughs> he's to. not going to. <laughs> Although he has been, uh, off. You know, got off to last year was, was terrible, right? Like, um, I think I read, and I don't care about pitcher wins, but I think I read he didn't have his first home win as a Cub until like a month into this season, <laughs> which is wild. Uh, and off, got off to a bit of a rough start last year, uh, this year, and, and then last year he missed. He got hurt and yeah, missed, he got hurt. Huh? missed most. I mean, missed most of the year and was terrible when he did pitch. This year, I uh, got off to, you know, not a bad start, but just a wild start, right? In his first 13 starts, uh, he had a, a 15% walk rate, 78 strikeouts, 44 walks, and 66 innings. In his last 14 starts, 105 strikeouts, 8 walks in 86 innings. The man just decided to stop walking people, which is a thing you can do, <laughs> apparently. It's, it's wild. <laughs> but the crazy part is he's done this while essentially expanding his repertoire. Yeah, so... Um, you know, pitch classification is a, a tricky thing, especially with a guy like you, Darvish. Uh, we, we put a lot more work into uh, identifying pitchers' pitches behind the scenes than I think people are aware of. You, Darvish, right now is throwing 10 different pitch types. So I wanted to know how rare that is. And the answer is extremely. Pitch tracking technology goes back to 2008. It was pitch effects before it was StatCast. And since 2008, we have 2,382 pitchers in our database. That includes position players pitching. Uh, from Justin Verlander, who's thrown over 2,500 innings, to Zach Weiss, who got into one game without getting any outs for Cincinnati last year. Of those 2,382 pitchers, they've averaged four pitch types each 92% of those pitchers have thrown between three pitch types and six pitch types. That makes sense. Most guys, you know, fastball, changeup, curveball, slider, you know, a couple other things on the side. 
only 4% of those guys, so about 99 pitchers, have had seven or more pitch types. Just 11 have thrown eight or more. Yu Darvish in one season is throwing 10. He is literally the only guy we've ever seen do this. Uh, so I went through and I, I dug into each pitch type. Um, we've confirmed some of this with the Cubs themselves. Darvish confirmed some of it on Twitter. Uh, MLB.com Cubs reporter Jordan Bastian tweeted the 10 pitch types. And you, Darvish, retweeted that tweet, which I will take as tacit endorsement. As you might expect, uh, when you have 10 pitch types, they get a little tricky into classifying. So some of these numbers will be slightly different than you might see elsewhere. He throws two different kinds of cutters. He throws a soft cutter 33% of the time and a hard cutter at 3% of the time. You wouldn't think those would be two pitch types, except uh, they are. He specifically started throwing it on June 5th in uh, against Colorado, as confirmed by the Cubs pitching coach. He was looking for a pitch that was in between his cutter and his four-seamer, uh, which is wild that you might need such a thing. He throws three different curveballs, a regular curveball, a knuckle curveball, a slow curveball, or an EFIS. He throws a splitter and a changeup and a four-seamer, and a slider, and a two-seamer, 10 different pitch types. And to to, to 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 backtrack a second, talk about the cutters, just so you don't think we're talking about pitches that where it's like, oh, you sure we're not misclassifying two pitches? There, there, there's a difference of five miles an hour. This yes. is like, these are these are distinct in terms of their velocity. They're very similar movement, but they're distinct in their velocity. This no. is not like two miles an hour no. off where it might be a little statistical noise. These are distinct pitches. The hard cutter average is 91.2 miles an hour. The soft cutter average is 86.3 miles an hour. His four-seamer is up at 94.0, as I said, right in between. Um, the curveballs, I think, are the most fun, right? So his regular curveball throws at 76 miles an hour 5% of the time. He throws the slow curve like two or three times a season, like an EFIS is what this pitch basically is, 63.7 miles an hour. And then there's the knuckle curve. Most pitchers don't have separate curveballs and knuckle curves, uh, but he does because he basically just watched Craig Kimbrell do it in August and said, cool. I'm going to do that. And then he did it, right? Like, like, this is what Kimbrell said. He walked up to me the other day and he said, hey, I've been working on that. I was like, cool. I didn't know he was going to go out and throw it. I thought that was pretty cool. He's thrown it 12 times, gave up one opposite field home run, but the other 11 have all been either foul balls, strikes, or in-play outs. He just invented a new pitch because he can. Um, not included in these 10 pitches are the fact that he can throw his curveball and his slider left-handed. There is video of that. He is such a freak of an athlete. And um, coming off of like a tough year and a half, like remember the World Series with the Dodgers in 2017 was not a memorable time for him last year with the Cubs, the beginning of this year with the Cubs. He is when he is on, he's maybe the most entertaining pitcher for me to watch just because nobody is like him. Yeah, this is this is the this is this is the you Darvish we were promised. This is like the guy that we sort of expected to get when he came over from Japan a few years ago, you know. Has the power stuff, but also has this like amazing feel for pitching. It's almost like it reminds me of kind of the peak Zach Greinke when Zach Greinke could still. I mean, Greinke's still fun in his own yeah, right, yeah. but Greinke throws ninety one now. Right. Like you know, Darvish still has has the um, has the velocity. And what was interesting, there was a piece a few weeks ago in uh, uh, on Fangraphs from Devin Fink where he basically looked at what it, what had changed, and basically like he's throwing a lot more pitches over the heart of the plate. That's a good way to stop walking. <laughs> yes, exactly. But he's, I guess because he's, he's so unpredictable and his movement is so good right now that like – and his command and movement are so good right now that he can get away with it. He's throwing a lot more pitches right in the heart of the plate. Um, his zone percentage is way up, close to 50%. It was down to near 40% in his first 13 starts of the year. Um, he's generating a lot more contact, but I guess it's 
you know, finding finding fielder's gloves. And he's been the pitcher. He's been better than the pitcher the Cubs thought they were signing when they gave him that big deal two years ago. And I really hope he's healthy. I mean, he he missed his last start because he had some forearm soreness. He said he's been pitching with that for you know about a month or two. Uh, he is expected to come back and make his start this weekend. Um, I, I really I liked his slider. I think most of all these pitches, we have our pitch movement leaderboards on Baseball Savant, where we look at movement uh, above average compared to pitches with a similar velocity. And if you look at the horizontal break leaders for sliders, the names here are phenomenal. Number one is Chaz Rowe. We love Chaz Rowe's slider on this show. It is maybe the most entertaining pitch in baseball. Uh, number two, Sonny Gray, Kyle Crick, Adam Adovino, and then you Darvish. He has... I guess I couldn't say all 10 of these pitches are above average pitches because one of them is an EFIS, <laughs> but he has the most different pitch types that I would consider to be solid or better uh, in all of baseball. And the Cubs are three games out in the National League Central. They still have a lot of games left against St. Louis. And they are three and a half games behind Washington for the first wild card. Although, as we are currently watching, the Nationals are losing ish to the Mets. But as we saw last night, none of that matters. <laughs> the, literally, the final pitch is thrown, and then maybe even not then. I'm not sure. We are going to talk about Hanser Alberta. <laughs> yeah. Alberta. Going from one of the the more... Uh, it's uh, Orioles talk, <laughs> exactly. and then Marlins talk. <laughs> exactly. Going from Cubs, one of the more the hottest, most interesting teams Please. in baseball right now, to the Orioles. Please but don't turn the show off. It's actually about the Orioles, and it's about batting average. I know. It's, and this is going to include... The, here's a teaser. One of my favorite, favorite like, statistical... Uh, statistical contextual measures i've ever seen okay yeah i can't wait to see that um hans alberto who if you don't know plays for the orioles right now is third in the american league in the batting average title race number one is dj lemayhu at 331 michael brantley 324 hans alberto at 323 there is a non-zero chance that he leads the american league in batting average at the end of the season I would enjoy that um, for so many reasons. Number one, maybe it would stop people from telling me DJ LeMahieu was going to be the American League MVP this year. He's had a great year. He's not the MVP, not while Mike Trout still exists. Number two, it would be great to see if a guy could lead the league in batting average after being cut four times in the previous six months, including once by his own team. He'd been with the Rangers uh, for many years, bounced up and down between the minors and the majors, selected by waivers by the Yankees last November. Imagine if he'd stayed with the Yankees and did this. Like, they don't have enough random guys who are playing incredibly well. Uh, in January, the waiver, the Orioles selected him off waivers, but then the Giants selected him off waivers in February. The Orioles got him back in March. He's now hitting 323. The other reason it would be hilarious is the Orioles are not a very good baseball team. They have a 331 winning percentage. I wanted to know how many guys, qualified players, have had a higher batting average than their team winning percentage. So I started to do some research, and then I realized that someone had already done it online. Jeremy Frank had done this. Since World War II, it's only happened four times. Three of them were on the 1962 Mets. This is what I was saying. <laughs> That's my favorite thing ever. That's what I was saying. This is my favorite thing. Hats tips to Jeremy Frank. Yeah, Frank Neal, Felix Mantilla, and the wrong Frank Thomas all had higher batting averages than the 250 winning percentage of the 1962 Mets. In addition, Dimitri Young on the legendary 43 and 119 2003 Detroit Tigers hit 297 against 265. But wait, there is somehow still more here. There's so much more. You would think to yourself, okay, well, if he's going to get this many hits, he's probably a highly skilled hitter. And I'm not saying he's not. However, he does not hit the ball hard at all. And I cannot oversell that word or that phrase at all. His exit velocity, his average exit velocity, 82.8 miles an hour, second percentile. His hard hit rate of 18.4%, 
first percentile. He is one of the weakest hitters in all of Major League Baseball. Sometimes to quantify that, I like to look at a guy's maximum exit velocity on an individual batted ball. The hardest hit ball he's had all year, 103.6 miles an hour. It's not nothing, but it's also one of the 10 lowest max batted balls of anybody with 100 batted balls. So tied for 362nd of 372. So you might think to yourself, he's getting wildly, massively lucky a little bit. But not really. You know, his expected batting average is 291. It's in the 92nd percentile. And his strikeout rate of 9% is the lowest of any qualified hitter. So what we have here is a guy who makes a ton of contact. He doesn't strike out. Um, and he doesn't hit the ball hard. So he's basically blooping everything. Like, I sort of feel like the outfielder should just be playing, you know, 210 feet away from home plate like all of them because he's not going to hit it over your head yeah and this is this isn't we talked about a, a kind of a similar type of player in, in Luis Arise a few weeks ago and we realized that part of what uh Arise is doing for the twins that's made him so effective is that he's really good at what we call sweet spot percentage which is batted balls between what is it between 10 and 8 and 32 8 degrees. and 32 it's like the hard hit rate of launch angle so he doesn't hit the ball that hard but he's like he's he's 48 percent sweet spot rate which I think is third in baseball amongst players with 100 100 yeah. plate appearances this year Alberto is like basically middle of the pack. It's average. So it's totally middle of the pack. So it's not that. So yes, it just feels like kind of uh Blubis feels kind of like uh remember the old the old the, the remember what you, you the the wrong Frank Thomas, yeah. the wrong Luis Castillo. It kind of feels like that guy. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's more. His platoon splits, we're back to Hanser Alberto now. Versus right-handed pitchers, 251, 277, 363. Solid meh. Versus lefty pitchers, 418, 436, 571 in the entirety of baseball history. Among anybody who's ever had at least 180 plate appearances in a season against a lefty, the best batting averages are 433 from Buster Posey in 2012, 424 from Mickey Mantle in 1964, 418 from Hanser Alberto this year, and 414 from Stan Musial in 1948. Those are three Hall of Famers and also... Hanser Alberto, I love this guy. I can't believe there's like five interesting things to say about Hanser Alberto. God bless this sport. <laughs> I want to get like one of those t-shirts, you know, you get those like those names where it's like John, Paul, George, and Ringo, where it's just like the simple font. I think they're, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, it's just like Helvetica Posey, yeah, the Helvetica t-shirts, Posey, Mantle, Alberto, Mutual. <laughs> that should be the official shirt of the StatCast podcast. Well, uh, wait, if we're really going to go for it, it's really got to be like Perdomo, Lugo, Alberto, and whoever number Quick four. Quick aside of Perdomo, I, uh... I unironically made a waiver claim on him in fantasy baseball this week. He's actually been really good. Even AJ Castavella, Padres beat reporter last week, tweeted out, I think Luis Perdomo might actually be good. So anyway. I, uh, unironically? <laughs> there's not a little bit of irony in this? I thought he actually could help my team. Anyway, back Be- back to uh, back to our show. Back to- but before we do get to uh, the catchers thing I want to talk about, let's just jump right ahead to John Birdie, okay? We're going to go from the Orioles to the Marlins because we are in this for the traffic. One of our uh, fantastic listeners, Max Steinberg, has been asking me about John Birdie. He tweeted at me, can we hear about John Birdie on the next StatCast podcast? The guy has epic sprint speed and a strangely large amount of opposite field home runs. One of those two things is true. Uh, John Birdie, who I'm sure you don't know, because why would you? He is a 29-year-old rookie for the Marlins. Been about a league average hitter, uh, 108 weighted runs created plus. He turns 30 in January, spent many years in the Toronto Blue Jays farm system, and uh, signed as a free agent with the Marlins last year. It is true that he has elite sprint speed, 98th percentile, 29.8 feet per second, tied for 11th in Major League Baseball. He has six home runs. Four of them are opposite field. One of those is in cores. 
Um, that is basically the extent of what I have to say about John Birdie. I'm doing it because Max asked, and he does have sprint speed. Uh, the Marlins have 120 home runs, the fewest in Major League Baseball. John Birdie has six of them. That has been your John Birdie <laughs> moment. <laughs> I have nothing further to add, but thank you for the question. Um, we <laughs> Do you have anything on John Birdie? No, No, but what we're talking about... Fast guys in the AL East. I think we should touch on Billy Hamilton. Then we could finish up with the, with the uh, wonderful with the hot uh, hot catcher facts. Um, Billy Hamilton is now in the Braves, and when they signed him, I guess he was DFA'd by the Royals. Yes, and the 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 Braves made a waiver claim. There was you know the report at the time from Ken Rosenthal. He had reported when it happened. Basically, it was like the the Braves are only going to use him essentially as. Defense and runner. Defensive runner. And that isn't exactly what's happened, but they are using him in a way that suggests he could become a really interesting well, piece in October. I, so I agree with you on that. Let, let's back up for a second here. There are people on the uh, baseball internet, myself included, who have been dying for this to happen for years because Billy Hamilton is obviously an elite base runner. He is an elite defender, and he absolutely cannot hit. Uh, he hit 211, 275, 269 for the Royals. Uh, and we have five years of StatCast tracking now. And if you look at everybody's hard hit rate, he has the five lowest hard hit rate seasons this year's 7.8% being the lowest. Uh, earlier when I said I like to look at guys, max exit velocities, and there are 372 guys with 100 batted balls this year. Only one of those guys has failed to reach 100 miles an hour, and that would be Billy Hamilton. <laughs> so he, can't, he just can't hit. Like, that's not a surprise. Uh, if anything, it's been a surprise. It's taken this long for teams to stop playing him every day. Last year, Travis Sawchuk, who was then at Fangraphs, went to Billy Hamilton in the locker room and said, hey, what do you think about a role where you would essentially just be what you're going to be now for the Braves, like a, a pinch runner uh, and a defender? And Billy Hamilton said, and I quote, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. No, no disrespect to him. He's an everyday player. You'd want to be. I totally get that. Um, but now he's with the Braves. And you know, as, as Matt said, he is basically going to be this kind of guy. He's started four games, but I think that's partially because Ender and Ciarte is hurt. And Marquegas is hurt. Marquegas is hurt. Uh, he has mostly come in on as a defender or a pinch runner. And um, as you as you said, you know, he will probably be coming off the bench in October. And I love that idea. I love that weapon. Like, it's it's really fun. The Braves are probably going to end up playing the Dodgers. Like, oh, no, the Dodgers no, will they'll, play the wild card. They'll, they'll play, play the, they'll play the, the Cardinals, Cardinals or Cubs. Cardinals, probably the yeah. Cardinals, but it could be the Cubs. The Cardinals yeah. and Cubs still play each other seven times. That division yeah. is still very much uh, yeah. in play. But it's... Um, you know, if you look at the Braves roster, sort of in big picture, you're like, well, is there going to be a spot for him on the postseason roster? Because they still, they also, they have Matt Joyce, they have um, Austin Riley, they have Adam Duvall. You, like, there's a lot of yeah, out- Charlie Culberson, Marquez might come back. Like, it's yeah. still unclear. Inciarte, maybe I'm not sure. If no, I think I think Marquez is more likely than yeah. Inciarte. Riley but- hasn't hit in like six months <laughs> either. Um, but um, we had all of our beat reporters at MLB.com who are on teams that are like playoff, essentially playoff bound, do a do a story this week predicting what the postseason rosters will look like. And Mark Bowman, our Braves reporter, um, predicts that that Hamilton will be on the roster, writing the defensive versatility Camargo and Culberson provide will allow the Braves to more comfortably utilize Billy Hamilton as a pinch runner, or possibly use one of their catchers as a pinch hitter, knowing they'll need to be replaced by a pinch runner. And that's what's awesome is Billy Hamilton on a postseason roster. Because when you're at a ballpark and Billy Hamilton is on pace, it is, it's exciting and it changes the complexion of that situation. So if you know you can bring him in any time in a high leverage, it's like having a high leverage reliever. Oh, we have a guy on first base with zero or one out where a, a stolen base will significantly change the run expectancy. It's exciting. I remember last year doing the uh, NL wildcard game, Cubs and Rockies. They had Terrence Gore 
Well, it's kind of the same idea. Um, I do. I really like this idea. If you remember the Braves last year when they were in the NLDS against the Dodgers, one of the talking points was that they could barely fill out a bench. Like their bench was so thin. They carried two backup catchers. They had Rene Rivera and Kurt Suzuki. Uh, they also had Lucas Duda and Ryan Flaherty and Lane Adams. Like it's not a very deep bench. And, you know, look at the names we just talked about. This is much better. What worries me a little bit is there's a right way to use him and there's a wrong way to use him. And we already saw what I'm calling the wrong way to use him. His second game with the Braves on the 23rd of August, they're playing the Mets, bottom of the 10th inning, tie game. Edwin Diaz comes in, immediately hits Alex Jackson, which par for the course. Uh, so Billy Hamilton pinch runs. He's on first base, nobody out. They call Charlie Culberson to sacrifice him to second. So that's the first out. And then Hamilton steals third base, which is like, well, why don't you just have Hamilton steal second base? That's why he exists. And what happens? Acuna strikes out. Albie strikes out. No run score. I was actually I was at that game. Wait, really? and, and as soon as he <laughs> as soon as they hit Jackson and Hamilton came in, I was like, well, obviously he's gonna steal yeah. second base now. So when they bunted, it was sort of like That's a gift. Exactly. If you're the Mets, you're like, sweet. That's right. <laughs> just gave us an out without having to try and attempt to throw out uh but Hamilton stealing second base. I, you you trust him to steal third, but not second. That's if that happens in the postseason, I think baseball Twitter is just going to burn yeah. its core. <laughs> uh, we will we will have to wait and see on that before uh, while we're on, before we switch to um, uh, finish up with catchers. A quick aside about the Mets. As we're recording this, they just defeated the Nationals eight to four. About 14 hours after blowing a 6-1 lead in the ninth inning. It sure did. If, if nothing else, we'll put to rest the idea that momentum exists <laughs> from game to game. <laughs> I hope it would be this, because if momentum existed from game to game, yeah, no. playing 12 hours after you blew a 6-1 lead in the ninth inning, you'd think they would, if momentum existed, you'd think they would lose like 14 to nothing. The fact they came back and won should put the idea to rest that momentum exists. On a, I know it won't, but it, it should. Wasn't there a stretch like... And maybe in July or June, where the uh, the Orioles went to Cleveland and won like twelve nothing on back to back days or something like that. And then what happened? Cleveland's been playing pretty well up until recently. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is is catchers, and I dug up some pretty interesting numbers. I think that I had never seen anybody present before. We talk a lot about how there's a constant number of pitchers all throwing crazy velocity and how that makes it so hard for hitters because that's a big reason, the biggest reason, I believe, why strikeouts are up. But what about catchers who have to deal with all of this stuff? So I went and uh, got some help from Jason Bernard on our data team, and we ran some fun numbers, and I wrote it up, and you should go look at it because I thought it was pretty cool. Omar Narvaez of the Seattle Mariners now holds a record he didn't know about, and I can say that with confidence because I asked Greg Johns, our Mariners beat reporter, to ask him, and he said, wow, he had no idea. Omar Narvaez has now caught 39 different pitchers this year. That is a single-season, single-team record. Uh, now that rosters are expanded, he'll probably get up over 40 by the end of the year. Nobody has ever caught that many pitchers in a year on one team. Previous record holder was, wait for it, last year's Seattle catcher Mike Zunino at 37. Uh, before that, a couple of guys had gotten up to 36. Now think about that for a second. Let's say Narvaez gets up to, I don't know, 41 pitchers by the end of the season. Yogi Berra caught in parts of 19 big league seasons across three decades, and he caught 98 pitchers total. <laughs> now, obviously, there are more pitchers now than there used to be. In the first year of the 30-team era in 1998, there were 557 pitchers, a little over 18 per team. So far this year, and again, this number will go up, 804 major league pitchers, 26.6 per team. There are more pitchers than ever. There's not necessarily more catchers than ever, so these guys now have to deal with 
guys in some cases they've never heard of. It's it's a really interesting way to think about like the toughest position in baseball may even be tougher than we always thought it was. And it's not just guys they never heard of. It's also like random dudes showing up from AAA who throw ninety nine, yeah, possibly without very good command, right? Like, <laughs> like it is a really really grueling job. Think about it as a hitter. Like back in the day, you know, you're coming up for your fourth plate appearance, and you've got your tired starter who's maybe now throwing like. 89 mile an hour slop and you're like yeah well the catcher probably thought that too and now it's like oh i don't know this guy and he looked 98 and he's throwing it with movement um so i dug into some of these numbers catchers from like the 1920s essentially up to the 1970s caught like eight to ten guys eight to ten pitchers uh per season get into the late 90s now you've got like tony la Russa, proliferation of bullpens now we're up to like 17 18 now we're north of 20 since basically 2014, and wouldn't you know it, catcher offense is also down since that time. Last year was one of the 10 weakest catcher hitting seasons on record. Part of it, I think, is just because they're being asked to focus on defense. Part of it is because I think guys like uh, Ryan Dumit and Evan Gaddis are just no longer allowed to catch anymore. Like, you, if you can't frame, you can't catch. Jeff Mathis is having one of the 10 or so weakest hitting seasons in the entire history of baseball, and he's on a two-year deal. He'll be back next year because he's a highly regarded <laughs> defensive catcher. That, like You wouldn't have a guy hitting 180 or whatever he's hitting uh, 15 years ago have his job. You'd have Ryan Dumit who could hit but couldn't catch. That is completely turned around. And also the, the players who are good catchers get moved off the position. Yeah, Harper, Myers, Schwarber, like – and even like, even for you know, for any number of reasons, even Buster Posey basically stopped being like, you know, a hundred and thirty game catcher at a young age, and then Joe Maurer had you know concussion issues and stopped right. being like. So as a result of that, teams are like we don't want to risk this guy who's such a good hitter getting one of these injuries that could sort of like take him out of the lineup indefinitely. So we're going to move him to first base or DH or somewhere else. Yeah, that's a great point. And then it's it's kind of um, even for the guys who stay at catcher they don't get to play as much so over the last 100 years an average of 7.1 catchers per season qualified for the batting average title over the last three years three five and four because every team has two catchers now which makes a lot of sense but it also means the, you know the backup catcher who's probably a weaker hitter is now taking up a larger share of the plate appearances which are probably not as effective as the starting catcher do you think that makes players like JT Realmuto even more valuable just by being like hey we have one catcher we know can catch 130 games and give above if, average if you can hold up to it yeah he's actually not having as good of a season no, as I thought he would no he's having he has like a like a I think like an 800 OPS yeah, and like which, fine, which is but, like 110 OPS yeah. but I'm saying like for catchers that's actually really yeah. good so it's 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 an interesting question also last year we had the highest rate of passed balls and wild pitches per game in baseball history I think this goes back to the nastiness of pitchers you know we talked a lot about uh uh, Yasmani Grandal and his disaster in the playoffs, and that was not a good look, no doubt. Uh, but that is not necessarily unusual anymore. Like it's really hard to catch this stuff. Gary Sanchez, perfect example, gets killed for that. He's a good framer, uh, and he crushes baseballs. Like he's he's actually kind of a rarity now. And for what it's worth, he's got a great arm, even though base stealing isn't a huge part of the game. But he 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 can throw out runners. And just because I dug up the numbers, in case you're interested, uh, the most pitchers caught by a single catcher dating back to 1921, 287 by Ivan, Ivan, Ivan Pudge Rodriguez. Uh, now he makes sense because he played for a long time and he moved around a bunch. Yeah, at the end of his at the end of his career, he basically like went from team to team. Yeah, like two years in Washington, he like went back to Texas for a minute. Like because if you go down, the, we'll go down the list and we're gonna remember some guys when we yeah, get down this list. Yes. Is guys who basically bounced. It's 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 almost all journeyman catchers. So of, basically, of pitch, recent vintage. Yeah, so it's Ivan Rodriguez one, Greg Zahn number That's two, AJ Przinsky number oh, three, yeah. Sene Sene Almer Jr., Henry Blanco, aka Hank White, number. 
one, two, three, four, five. Russell Martin, number six. And then Kelly Stinnett, wow. number seven. I did not expect Original-ish to be Original-ish talk- Diamondback Kelly Stinnett. That's I think so. That's kind of how I remember him. Uh, Russell Martin is at 223. I don't think he's going to get to the uh, additional 64 or so he needs to top uh, Rodriguez. But if he leaves the Dodgers and goes to, let's say, a new team each year for the next three seasons... He'll get. To, he'll. He'll definitely. He, he looks like he's on pace to get to at least number two on the list. Well, he also might be done at the end of the year. Well, there's that <laughs> his contract's up. You know, he's thirty six. I, I think. guess he's not really hitting very much this year, is he? It, uh, it's actually his weakest hitting season of his career. But he is pitching well. So. But, but he is pitching but well. He's not going to qualify as a two way player. I don't think he's pitched quite enough to. Uh, that could have saved his career. <laughs> he is pitching well. That is one of the more interesting Russell Martin facts of the day. Uh, that is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com Stackcast podcast. Thanks for listening.